0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brookmarkle, and coming up on the program, the book, An Englishman in the Seminole War, a memoir based upon the letters of John Bemrose, edited by Randall J. Agostini, offers a first-person account of early 19th century Florida.
1: He was befriended by several of the doctors And so he became very useful to the Army in St. Augustine and then of course eventually in the Seminole War.
0: As the ninth Annual Gerald Schaffner Lecture on Florida History and Culture is scheduled for October 11th, we'll look at the history of the event.
2: The popularity of the lectures encourage us to continue the series, although we varied the format.
0: And we'll discuss the people of the Everglades. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. When the unaccompanied 16-year-old John Bemrose came to America from England in 1831, he would have recognized this melody as the British national anthem, God Save the King, but not the brand-new American lyrics by Samuel Francis Smith. The book, An Englishman in the Seminole War, a memoir based upon the letters of John Bemrose, presents a first-hand account of the people and places of the period available to the public for the first time. Randall J. Agostini is the great-great-grandson of John Bemrose and editor of the book. Agostini says that Bemrose had a specific purpose in mind when writing his letters.
1: It seems as though that he had an errant son, one of a a child that was uh, probably more rebellious, and he, I think, was trying to figure out a way how he could communicate with this boy in a way that was uh, kind of uh, exciting and also uh, neutral. And so he used his experiences in uh, the the days that he spent in the United States in the army uh, as a vehicle to communicate a lot of his thoughts as to uh, what a person should be and act and that sort of thing. And I think that was his main purpose. In fact, I think that it resonated so well in the family that the other children also wanted copies of the letters he wrote.
0: Randall Agostini was born in Trinidad, grew up in England, served in the British Army, and returned to Trinidad where he had a career as a commercial pilot. He emigrated to the U.S. in 1987 and now lives in Florida. Agostini first became aware of the letters of John Bemrose as a child when he and his two sisters lived with their grandparents in
1: England. My grandmother uh, heard about uh, these letters through her sister, uh, who lived in Rochester, and uh, her name was Beatrice. And uh, she asked her husband, my grandfather, George, to if she could get a copy of this, and he decided to make it into a book. So he had the, uh, the 60 letters typewritten and uh, put in a book, which uh, I eventually inherited because uh, when my grandmother died, he gave the book to uh, my mother, and then my mother gave it to me as a reward for writing her memoirs.
0: Agostini has edited the 60 letters of John Bemrose into a compelling
1: narrative that reads like a novel. I have to thank the technology because uh, when I received uh, the letters, or when I received the book, it was at a time where computers... Uh, home computers were now starting to develop. And so, what I was able to do with the advantage that uh, John Bemrose didn't have, or other authors of his time did not have, was that uh, you could pretty much start anywhere with the material that I had and just develop it uh, from that. And you had tools like you could find words, you know, and see how they interrelated uh, one to another. You could find mistakes that way. And I I grew to respect uh, authors of the, especially of the 18th century and before writing uh, books because how they, they must have been brilliant to remember everything they wanted to put down at the end of the book and how it correlated to what was in the beginning of the book, which was a computer, of course, uh, makes that a very, very easy process. Thanks to Agostini's editing, the writing of
0: John Bemrose is no longer in letter form. His story is now presented as
1: a memoir. Well, I actually did start uh, from the beginning, and uh, I would take the first letter And I patterned the uh, chapters per letter, which I eventually changed uh, uh, for this particular book. And I just went through them one by one. And uh, the story itself sort of developed on its own because I found that there may have been duplications of the same story in different letters, And often it was seen by John from a different perspective, and I found that very interesting. And so the the composite picture of a particular story was even more interesting as a result. For more than
0: 150
1: years, John Bemrose's
0: experiences in Florida during the Seminole War was only read by his family members and descendants. Eventually, Agostini realized that the public might find the story to be engaging and informative.
1: It was really written for my family. You know, we're all progeny of him. And so that was really what it was for. I had originally copied the book, uh, Xeroxed the book, and I had sent copies uh, all over the world to the extended family of my mother. And uh, there were over 30. And uh, that generated a lot of interest. But uh, because of the quality of the copy and also the difficulty of reading the language uh, the way it was written at that time. It was not an interesting read as what I tried to make it into as, as a real story that followed one day upon the next.
0: Agostini has succeeded in transforming the letters into a compelling work accessible to modern readers. John Bemrose came to America from England in 1831 as an unaccompanied 16-year-old. Although he was too young to serve in the United States Army, he was accepted anyway. He
1: was a young man, and he had the misfortune. At the time, he was an apprentice. Uh, We would call him a druggist there. They would call him a chemist in England. And he was an apprentice chemist uh, and very happy working there. But uh, there was a person who he worked with who looked as though he befriended him was really his enemy. And as a result... Uh, John Bemrose uh, ran away from that institution, and I don't think that he knew exactly what he was going to do. He was just running away from a situation, and he found himself in Liverpool. And uh, he had this excitement of seeing the ships and beginning to have this wanderlust of a young man. And he sold the great coat that his father had given him to pay for the voyage to come to America and he had very little money left uh, with him uh, after paying for the passage. So he landed up in New York and eventually he uh, walked to Philadelphia. Uh, He walked through New Jersey and he ran out of money and he became completely dependent upon other people. And uh, so he realized it was, uh, he, he was able to join. First of all, he tried the Navy, and then he, he subsequently joined the Army because I think they were paying a little bit more up front.
0: Bemrose documented his life as a dedicated hospital steward both before and during the Second Seminole War. His detailed writing tells us a lot about medical
1: practices in 1830s Florida. This was, I think, a huge accident, Uh, What happened was the hospital in St. Augustine needed uh, professional people, and the training that he had received, although he thought it was a more provisional uh, sort of training, had a great deal more expertise. But the other thing that happened to him is that he was befriended by several of the doctors, and so he became very useful to the Army in St. Augustine and then, of course, eventually in the Seminole War.
0: Anyone interested in Florida history will find Bemrose's descriptions of 19th century St. Augustine, Jacksonville, Micanopy and other locations intriguing.
1: Randall Agostini. Oh, yes, he had to travel. The Army made him travel around Florida uh, quite extensively in those days, uh, mainly by boat because uh, they didn't have a road system as we know it now.
0: Bemrose also shares his memories of walking through the Florida wilderness and personal observations of people who are now historic figures, including Osceola
1: and Charles Bulow. The Seminole War, in fact, was the training ground for a lot of important officers in the Civil War. And they were junior officers during the Seminole War, and they became important people in the Civil War. And, of course, he remembered those people at the time when he started to write his letters. John Bemrose wrote
0: his letters between 1863 and 1866, 30 years after the events he's describing in Florida. In a separate essay at the end of the book, Bemrose offers his perspective on the American Civil War, which is happening as he reflects upon his experiences in the Seminole War. In his first-hand account, Bemrose talks about people of diverse nationalities and backgrounds that he encounters, and he's most impressed with enslaved people.
1: Yes, I think this was a big uh, difference for him, England. There was no real slavery in England. Britain had its slaves in its colonies. And so uh, an English boy coming to America, this is where he would come across slavery for the first time. And so it was uh, a society that he was not used to. And it was easy to see, especially in the South, how uh, it it became very graphic to him as to how these people uh, had to live and work.
0: Randall Agostini feels as if he came to know his great-great-grandfather
1: by editing his memoir. He was very observant in in almost a philosophical way, and he was able to uh, to transfer uh, those thoughts uh, onto paper, uh, which uh, we uh, are the beneficiaries of. The other thing is that I found it interesting how he was a very religious person in his themes, and uh, how he introduced uh, his faith, although he wasn't a practicing Christian, how he introduced his Christianity into his daily life. Randall J. Agostini
0: is editor of the book An Englishman in the Seminole War, a memoir based upon the letters of John Bemrose, published by the Florida Historical Society Press. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find discounted books on Florida history and culture, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, the annual Gerald Schaffner Lecture on Florida History and Culture is coming up on October 11th. Tell us about the history of this lecture series.
2: Happy to tell you the annual Gerald Schaffner Lecture Series originated in 2013 as part of the commemoration of the 500th anniversary of the landing of Ponce de Leon in Florida in 1513. The Florida Historical Quarterly had undertaken a five-year project to honor the anniversary by publishing a series of special issues that would provide an overview of the historiography of each century and point toward new directions in historical research and interpretation. Each special issue was edited by a distinguished scholar of the era who was responsible for writing the historiographic essay and overseeing the other articles in the issue. Dan Murphy, assistant editor of the FHQ, and I wanted to highlight the special issues in a public forum. We decided to host an annual lecture featuring the guest editor as the evening speaker. Paul Hoffman launched the series with his talk on 16th century Florida. He was followed by Jane Landers, Sherry Johnson, James Cusick, and Gary Momino. The lectures proved to be very popular. Held at the University of Central Florida, they were free and open to the public and were videoed for viewing by those unable to be present. The popularity of the lectures encouraged us to continue the series, although we varied the format.
0: Now, changing the format of a popular event can be a little risky. How did you change the format, and how did it work
2: out? In 2018, the lecture focused on new research on the Reconstruction era. The period was selected to honor the work of Gerald Schaffner, for whom the lectures are named, who is best remembered for his book, Nor Is It Over Yet, Florida in the Era of Reconstruction, 1863 to 1877. Although the book was published in 1974, it remains relevant to reconstruction historiography as Schaffner's analysis and insights were ahead of his time. For this event, we used a moderated panel of reconstruction scholars. Paul Ortiz from the University of Florida and Stephen Prince of the University of South Florida were presenters and Robert Casanello of UCF moderated the panel. A lively discussion after the presentation centered on the long-term effects of reconstruction, particularly in the shaping of law. In this case, the loss of voting rights for specific offenses. Students were talking about the event for days afterwards, and it provided an exciting, teachable moment. The next year, we experimented with expanding the event, as well as changing the format. Instead of one event, we offered two a moderated panel at noon, and a moderated conversation in the evening. Both events focused on Florida's environmental history. At the noon event, Stephen Knoll of UF, Chris Wilhelm of the College of Coastal Georgia, and Mike Gunder Jr. of Rollins College presented papers in a traditional conference style. At the evening session, the format changed to a conversation on environmental history. Mark Hersey of Mississippi State University and co-editor of the journal Environmental History facilitated the conversation between Jack Davis of the University of Florida, whose book, The Gulf, The Making of an American Sea had just won a Pulitzer Prize. And Michelle Novakas of Miami University of Ohio, whose book, Liquid Landscape, Geography and Settlement at the Edge of Early America, won both the Rembert Patrick Award and the Stetson Kennedy Award from the Florida Historical Society. In 2020, we planned to focus on gender and race in the women's suffrage movement. The format became more problematic as face-to-face events became impossible due to the COVID-19 pandemic. That said, the Schaffner Lecture drew a large audience for at least two reasons— First, the Florida Historical Society had shifted its meeting format to include two events, one in May and a second event to coincide with the Schaffner Lecture. Two days of scholarly presentations led into the Schaffner Lecture. Many from the FHS meeting attended the lecture, adding to the usual local and UCF audiences. The second reason for the large audience was the speaker, Martha S. Jones of Johns Hopkins University whose book Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All had just been published the month before the lecture to national acclaim. Her insightful lecture was both thought-provoking and accessible to all audiences.
0: And Connie, you have some exciting speakers planned for this year, right?
2: Yes, and this is another anniversary year. The 2021-2022 issues of the quarterly will comprise the 100th volume of the FHQ, a cause for celebration. In honor of this milestone, we have invited four editors or former editors of history journals to discuss the role of history today and for the future. They will address topics that include the research and writing of history, the future of journals, and other types of publications, and the role of history and memory. The conversation will be between Alex Litkenstein of the American Historical Review, the oldest and most distinguished American history journal, Randall Hall of the Journal of Southern History, Claire Strong of the Agricultural History, and Craig Friend, who was editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly before my tenure. The ninth annual Gerald Schaffner Lecture on Florida History and Culture will occur on October the 11th, 2021 at 6.30 p.m. at the Morgridge International Reading Center on the UCF campus. The event will also be available through Zoom. You can register in person for the in-person or Zoom access using the URL available on the FHS and the FHQ websites or the FHS and FHQ social media sites. Funding for the 2021 Schaffner Lecture was provided through a grant from the Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. And of course, any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of the Florida Humanities or the National Endowment for the Humanities. And we are most grateful for their support and the Florida Historical Society
0: Virtual Annual Meeting and Symposium will be happening in conjunction with the Schaffner Lecture again.
2: Yes, it will. Papers representing new research by students and scholars will be presented via Zoom throughout the day of October the 11th. A program of presentations and Zoom links will be available nearer the date of the presentations. We're looking forward to seeing you at the FHS meeting and the Schaffner Lecture. Great. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome.
0: Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. The Everglades is a unique environment that is home to a variety of wildlife. It's also been home to a variety of people. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in COCO. In
3: 1928, landscape architect Ernest Coe created the Tropical Everglades National Park Association and led efforts to establish a national park dedicated to the preservation of the Everglades. Due in large part to his advocacy, in 1934, Congress passed legislation to create Everglades National Park. Ben DiBiase is a Floridian and a historian with the cultural and heritage resources management company Paleo West. He told me more about the formation of the Everglades National Park.
4: So the Everglades National Park, as we know it today, is one of the largest preserved tropical wildernesses in in all of North America. In fact, it's one of the largest national parks in the continental U.S. in the national park system. Uh, And it encompasses a huge part of southern Florida, so parts of Dade County, Collier County, and Monroe County, from about the the headwaters, which is near, you know, south-central Florida, Lake Okeechobee, flowing south. So the Everglades is, as Marjorie Stoneman Douglas described it, a river of grass. It's a very slow-moving river that kind of starts around the Okeechobee area and just flows down the, the southern landmass of South Florida and empties into Florida Bay. It's a freshwater system and then it mixes with the saltwater of Florida Bay and becomes this very unique, ecologically speaking, a unique subtropical environment that's home to millions of diverse plant and animal life.
3: When Everglades National Park was established, there were still people living and working in the Everglades. In the 19th century, The Seminole took refuge in the Everglades while eluding the U.S. government's efforts to forcibly relocate them to Oklahoma. In the 20th century, they continued to live there, even as preservation efforts and increased tourism further encroached upon their lives. There were also people known as gladesmen and Everglades hermits living within Everglades National Park until the 1980s.
4: You also in the 19th century had a number of, just kind of a, a smattering of, of different characters that lived down there. Some of these people were, you know, escaping the, the law. Some of these people were just, just wanted to get away from civilization. They were living on the frontier they became kind of collectively known as the Everglades Hermits. And a lot of these people lived along the western uh, coast, the southwestern coast from Cape Sable, north up into, you know, near present-day Naples, along that scattered area called the 10,000 Islands. You had a lot of these people that really just lived off the land. They were uh, fishermen, and they were hunters and trappers, and they traded with the Seminole and Miccosukee, and they just sort of lived this kind of untouched life, you know, for many years. And then, it all started changing in the 20th century and and you had the development and, and establishment of a park. So now you have the federal government trying to figure out, okay, what's the procedure? How do you deal with people who have lived here forever? And a lot of people had these special permits, so they were allowed to live within the park boundaries, on their original homesteads or or their farms or whatever, it really usually until they died, so they couldn't give the land to anyone else, so they could really live out the rest of their lives. And a lot of these people did. And they had just some fascinating stories. There were some great oral histories that had been collected in the 1960s and 70s, a lot of which were done by the National Park Service to kind of capture those stories.
3: People continued to reside and work within the boundaries of Everglades National Park until the late 20th century. One area of the Everglades, known as the Hole in the Donut, was originally set aside for agricultural use.
4: When you looked at a map of the Everglades Park, there's this big carved out area, and it looks like a hole in a donut. And that's the area that was essentially left out of the park and preserved for agricultural development, which which occurred throughout the next couple of decades, until about 1975, when the federal government finally purchased up all of that land and began restoration efforts. And it really became one of the largest and beginnings of this massive movement for Everglades um, restoration. So not only preservation, but restoration of the natural water flow. That hole in the donut section, which is its its own fascinating story, because you had uh, different groups of migrant laborers that lived and worked in and around that area in beginning in, in around the 1920s and actually a little bit earlier, the teens through through the 1970s. And that area, I think, is a good microcosm for the story of migrant labor, farm labor in Florida, because early on you had a lot of—the the migrant laborers were comprised of Caribbean workers, primarily those from Jamaica, from the Bahamas, that came to South Florida and sought work in the fields that became— eventually became part of the Everglades. And then later during the Depression era, you had both white and black workers that were working for the Works Progress Administration, for the Farm Securities Administration, trying to find work, these migrant laborers coming from all over the country to South Florida to work in the uh, potato and tomato fields uh, of what became the Hole in the Donut.
3: The Hole in the Donut agricultural area was officially acquired by the U.S. government and became a part of Everglades National Park in 1975. In recent years, there have been restoration efforts in the hole in the donut, including the removal of invasive Brazilian pepper plants. Today, Everglades National Park is teeming with plant and animal species not found anywhere else in the world. It's home to the manatee, the American crocodile, and the Florida panther. The park is also a birder's paradise with more than 350 different species of birds. Its unique ecosystem makes Everglades National Park one of the most visited parks in the United States. Ben DiBiase.
4: This day and age, it's a little bit difficult, of course, to travel. But generally, the, the Everglades Park receives about a million visitors a year. So it's a, a very highly visited national park. The Everglades story is, it goes well beyond you know, just the story of this really diverse and fascinating and wonderful biodiversity, but also the human story, the anthropological story, if you will, the story of human beings and their impact, especially in the recent history of the Everglades, I think is so fascinating in a story that is a big part of the development of Florida, really, as a whole.
3: For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in COCO.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State, Division of Historical Resources, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at RossiterHouseMuseum.org.